Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and today my guest is Dr. Stephen Landy. Welcome, Dr. Landy. Thank you, Dr. Wilner. I appreciate the invite. Well, you know, um, I had the pleasure of going to a lecture that you did on migraine and Botox, and I was really impressed at your experience, 39 years, right, as a practicing neurologist now in Tupelo, Mississippi, and specializing in headache. You know, and as a neurologist, you learn there, there's only two kinds of headaches, right? There's headaches that are due to life-threatening, terrible things, a brain tumor, and, or a stroke, or bleeding in the brain. And then there's primary headaches, headaches that just show up, right? And of course, those can be subdivided into many, many types. But uh, so you specialize now in the treatment of these primary headaches. Is that correct? Yes. So, so I've been involved in headache um, from a practice standpoint, primarily, but education, research, uh, publications. Got involved with a lot of the um, migraine-specific medications that came out were FDA approved in the early 90s and primarily migraine oriented. All right, let me stop you there. Tell us what's migraine? Why is that special? Oh, it's special um, because as you mentioned so well, it's a primary headache. And it is, as far as what healthcare providers see, the, the most common form of primary headache. Uh, frequently taught in med school and even in neurology residency, Andrew, as a unilateral throbbing headache with nausea, light and sound sensitivity, uh, frequently preceded by an aura, you know, which is usually visual, uh, bright lights, uh, visual field cut, uh, which usually lasts somewhere between five and 60 minutes. So that's like a textbook presentation of migraine. What happens in clinical practice is we see this spectrum of migraine. So it can be bilateral, non-throbbing. I think the key component of migraine that differentiates it from other primary headaches or even secondary headaches, and the other primary headaches are primarily tension type headache, which is really not disabling, and then cluster headache, which is quite different, is that migraine is usually episodic, usually lasts somewhere between four and 72 hours. And then during the intervals of headache freedom, the patient is fine. And the headache is frequently associated with nausea, light and sound sensitivity, and is disabling. The patients like to get in a dark, quiet room. So it's a rather easy diagnosis to make if you consider the spectrum that not all migraine is unilateral and throbbing, but there are various degrees of migraine from a pain and sensitivity standpoint, um, various degrees of migraine from a disability standpoint, but it's usually disabling and it is so common. I mean, for the average neurologist, most common complaint we see. Well, I'm going to make a comment first for those non-physicians 
listening and watching, uh, you're emphasizing all the clinical aspects and that you would get from the patient and historical because there's no test for migraine. There's no blood test. There's no scan. There's no objective way to say, yes, you have migraine. And so it's very important for the patient to talk with the doctor, right? And for the doctor to listen and ask the right questions so he can determine, yes, that's migraine, because that's going to that's going to channel into the treatment, right? Your treatment is going to be migraine specific, but you got to know that it's migraine to start out with. Oh, you said that so perfectly well. All right. So now you tell me how common is it? So it's 12% of the population. So what more uh, than one in 10? Oh, yes. 18% of women, probably at least 6% of men, 4% of children. Uh, uh, very common. Now that's in the population. I would say probably about 50% of those folks don't see a healthcare provider. They're lucky. Uh, I can tell you that 40% of the migraine population has four or more migraines a day, wow. is uh, very disabled and should be seeing a healthcare provider. And you're right. Uh, there's no marker for diagnosis. There's no predictor of treatment response. So, you know, the practice of medicine, the art of medicine, you know, the science of medicine, uh, it is very individualized when it comes to the patient because migraine is different from patient to patient and even in the same patient from attack to attack. So you have to develop a relationship with the patient to really right. understand kind of what's going on in their life what's going on maybe with their genes, because there's a strong family history usually, what's going on in their environment, um, what other medical diseases they have, and consider all that when you're, you know, not only making the diagnosis, but probably more importantly, coming up with the treatment plan. Right. I think, you know, it's really important to give it a name, because uh, migraine, and I want you to tell me about triggers, because if you can identify triggers, then you can avoid triggers. But first, you got to know that you've got migraine so you can be on the alert. What are, what are some of the common triggers that, that say you could avoid, you know, and maybe have fewer headaches without taking any medication? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. So most migraine patients have triggers. Um, and I, I think it's important uh, to identify those, for the patients to identify those, and they usually can. And if they're having a, a difficult time or a challenging time identifying those triggers, I, I recommend they try to keep a headache diary and take notes and kind of write down the days they have a, a migraine and maybe what they did the day before or the night before the migraine came on. And frequently it's stress, a missed meal or delayed meal, a change in their sleep habits or exercise habits, some kind of uh, alteration in their uh, a normal pattern seems to be a frequent trigger. For example, there is uh, what we call weekend migraine where you know, the, the, the person works all week or goes to school all week, and then they're really looking forward to the weekend, and boom, 
they wake up on Saturday morning with a migraine. You know, that's because they've changed their routine, their schedule. So I kind of look at that and know that migraine triggers, just like the headaches, vary from patient to patient. And uh, they're not that consistent in some patients. And I think in the ones that they're inconsistent, you need to consider trigger stacking, where they missed a meal, they've not slept well, they're stressed and all that stacks up and um, basically overcomes the threshold to the development of the migraine. I'm gonna tell you, uh, I'm one of the 12% that has migraine ever since I was in college. And of course, at that time, I didn't really know what it was. When I became a neurologist, I got a little more insightful and started hunting for triggers. So I'm going to tell you a trigger story. I used to work in Charlotte and uh, I was on call fairly frequently. But if I had a break, there was a restaurant that had a little outdoor cafe and the weather's pretty good in Charlotte and they would have a wine of the day. So I would always have, you know, the house wine with the sandwich. It didn't impair me too much. But I noticed that after I ate at the restaurant, I often had a migraine and I didn't put it together for a long, long time, you know, because there's a lot of other things going on. And uh, one, then one day I said, you know, every time I eat there and I thought, you know, I don't drink much. And I thought maybe it's that free glass of wine. So I went back to the restaurant and I asked him, I said, what do you serve on your, you know, your free wine, you know, that comes with the meal? They said, oh, it's always a Merlot. And uh, so I just, I took an experiment, you know, when I was off, I said, oh, I'll drink a little Merlot. Sure enough, eight times out of 10, when I drink a Merlot, I get a migraine. So, uh, you know, as you say, it's not, I think that they can be, triggers can be difficult to identify because they're not always, it's not like every time I miss a meal, I get a headache. But and it's not every time, but I can rarely get away with drinking Merlot. So they're they're off the list. We we don't buy those. Well, you're smart, Andrew. You know, we, <laughs> we all know that. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Merlot because it is more frequent with the red wine than like the Chardonnays. So yeah, it's very interesting. All right. Now suppose I'm I'm alert. I've talked to you, I've got my triggers, I'm controlling everything that I can do, but I'm still having migraines what what's the next step and that's usually the case i mean triggers are partly responsible but not totally responsible for the migraine frequency so you know i kind of look into disability you know how is it affecting your life and almost every time if they're seeing me or seeing a neurologist like you there's significant impact so there's not only pain, there's disability, and then you go for the, the frequency of this pain and disability. And interestingly enough, from a diagnostic standpoint, if it's 15 or more days a month, that's chronic migraine. And that's only 10% of the migraine population. And as I mentioned, you know, it's pretty frequent that the migraine patients that we're seeing, it's four or more days a month. So you're immediately starting to think, okay, this patient needs to think about triggers. They need to um, think about, you know, getting in a routine, relaxing more, sleeping better, not missing or delaying meals. 
But I, I think what becomes more important is they, they need a symptomatic or abortive medication. So something to take when they get the headache. Absolutely. And um, been a, just huge breakthroughs in my professional career. You know, as I mentioned in the early 90s, you know, I kind of got involved in research. The triptan class, uh, seven of those, uh, the first one out was Imitrex. And then in the last uh, year and a half, a new class has come out called G-Pants. These are migraine-specific drugs that address the, the pain pathophysiology of migraine. You know, uh, very different than just kind of putting a Band-Aid on the problem, which is the over-the-counter medications like BC powders and Excedrin. So, you know, we go ahead and treat symptomatically, preferably in patients that aren't doing so well with over-the-counter medicine, we give them migraine-specific medicine. And then if it's four or more days a month, we're thinking about prevention as well. Not only non-pharmacologic prevention, but medication prevention. And we have really good medicine for that too. It was uh, repurposed medicine till the last few years, you know, drugs that came out with a totally different indication than migraine found to be helpful for migraine. But there were side effects, efficacy wasn't that good because they weren't migraine specific either. So in the last few years, you know, we have, we now have migraine specific medication. And um, those have made things a lot better, a lot easier for the patient, uh, better tolerated, uh, more efficacious. And then, you know, I appreciate you so much, you know, as faculty coming to that discussion we had uh, a, a few months back, uh, you know, with your residents, I was very impressed. Um, but in 2010, Botox was FDA approved for the chronic migraine group of patients. And that was a big breakthrough too. Now, is that the same Botox that I should probably use for my, for my wrinkles? That's the same stuff? I don't know. You look distinguished as those wrinkles, <laughs> but it is the same stuff. Yes. It's just it, administered very different than you would administer it, you know, aesthetically. Mm -hmm. And it's for migraine. Oh, FDA approved for chronic migraine. So no, more than 15 days, more than 15 days a month. Now, do you have any patients in your practice that you give Botox to? Oh, yes. Yeah, I have many. And, you know, it's been interesting since 2010. Because I don't think most physicians before then, unless they were doing migraine research, were really differentiating migraine patients as episodic versus chronic. And, you know, I'm direct a headache clinic. So, you know, I'm not seeing straightforward migraine all the time. I'm seeing these, uh, the spectrum of migraine. And within that spectrum, it's not only days um, where the uh, headache frequency is different, the presentation of their migraines different from attack to attack. But these folks that I see over 50% actually have chronic migraine. So they're, you know, a good candidate for Botox if they haven't received it in the past and they wouldn't be seeing me if they were doing well. So uh, it's been a nice option that's helped a whole lot of folks. So you, you know, you may not be able to get rid of every single headache, 
But if they're having 15 days a month, maybe you can get them to five days a month and maybe the headaches don't last as long or aren't as severe. Is that right? That's exactly the idea. It's a realistic expectations where the majority of migraine patients that are responders to whatever prevention, including Botox, you're not gonna eliminate all their migraines, but you'll reduce the frequency, intensity, and duration, and actually may improve their response to their symptomatic or abortive treatments. So now, like you said, it's, it's genetic, right? So okay. we, don't, we don't, not yet anyway, we can't remove that gene. So you're kind of stuck with the gene, at least for now, but uh, symptomatically. Um, so two questions. What percent of your patients do you think improve their migraines after you've diagnosed them and explained it by just by lifestyle modification, you know, getting enough sleep, diet, triggers? How many patients actually make some headway with that? You know, you brought up some really good points, you know, just making the diagnosis is important. And then, you know, having this discussion, you know, about migraine, differentiating episodic from chronic, what you can do to help yourself. Um, I've done some research related to this, Andrew. It looks like about 50%. Mm -hmm. Now, could you have helped them more, you know, with the medication too? Probably, but just a good education without anything else, you know, making the diagnosis, educating the patient appropriately, avoiding triggers, lifestyle changes. I think it helps at least 50%. I know once I figured out what was going on and why my head hurt so much, mm -hmm. and I started identifying uh, triggers, sleep deprivation for me was huge. If I was sleep deprived, because usually I used to lecture all over the country. And of course I'd work all day, get on the plane and fly there so I could give the talk. And I realized that when I traveled and was tired, the chances of me getting a migraine went way, way up. And so I started just going home after work and traveling early the next day. And uh, jet fuel causes migraines for me. When I go to the airport, if I smell that you know jet fuel in the air, bang, migraine. If I'm well rested, maybe I'll get through it and I won't get it. So I think, you know, just knowing what's wrong with you. So I think people with headaches have a lot of potential benefit from seeing a specialist who understands headaches. Just like you do. I, I, I totally agree with that. A hundred percent to see somebody, if you're going to get evaluated that, you know, has an interest, a special interest in headache and specifically migraine if possible. Now you're in Tupelo, Mississippi. Are you still accepting new patients? Yes, Andrew, yeah. All right, so you're in the book, Dr. Stephen Landy, Tupelo, Mississippi, headache. They can find you, uh, no problem. Easily. Wonderful. Life has become easy from a communication standpoint if it's done correctly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Dr. Landy, I want to thank you very much for uh, participating in this interesting discussion. I've enjoyed talking with you about uh, migraine and learned a little bit. It's been great. Likewise. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks for joining me on The Art of Medicine.
This program is hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Wilner, MD, FACP, FAAN. Guests receive no financial compensation for their appearance on the art of medicine. Andrew Wilner, MD, is Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Memphis, Tennessee. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program belong solely to Dr. Wilner and his guests and not necessarily to their employers, organizations, or other group or individual. While this program intends to be informative, it is meant for entertainment purposes only. The Art of Medicine does not offer professional financial, legal, or medical advice. Dr. Wilner and his guests assume no responsibility or liability for any damages, financial or otherwise, that arise in connection with consuming this program's content. Thanks for watching. For more episodes of The Art of Medicine, please subscribe www.andrewwilner.com.